Last time, we followed the metabolism of glucose through the glycolytic pathway, or glycolysis. And at the end, we had two molecules of pyruvate. We also saw that in the absence of oxygen, pyruvate could be further metabolized by a process called fermentation, two examples of which were conversion to lactate or to ethanol plus carbon dioxide. So now let's turn to the case where oxygen is present. In this case, we're headed to the complete oxidation of glucose to six molecules of CO2 and six molecules of water. C6H12O6 plus six O2 goes to six CO2 and six H2O as an overall reaction. The delta G naught for this reaction is minus 686 kilocalories per mole. And we're going to hope to get a lot more ADP going to ATP conversions out of this. In the presence of oxygen, glycolysis down to pyruvate is the same, but the fate of pyruvate is now different. Rather than heading toward lactate or ethanol, as shown at the bottom of the glycolysis handout, the pyruvate jumps to another handout, the Krebs cycle. Keep in mind that by foregoing the reduction of pyruvate, we have not satisfied our loose end of NADH2 accumulation from the oxidation step in glycolysis. That was step six. The fate of pyruvate is now different. It'll enter a series of reactions known as the Krebs cycle, also known as the TCA cycle or the citric acid cycle, in which all of its carbons will indeed end up as CO2. However, as we're about to see, its hydrogens will not be converted to water here, and very little ATP will be produced here. Please follow along in the Krebs cycle diagram as the reactions are discussed. At the top of the Krebs cycle diagram, we see our pyruvate entering from the top left in a reaction that's not part of the cycle of reactions seen below. Before entering the cycle, pyruvate undergoes a relatively complicated reaction involving an oxidation, once again using NAD as the oxidizing agent, as well as a decarboxylation, the splitting off of the carboxyl carbon as CO2, as when ethanol was made in yeast, and leaving a two-carbon acetate group. So here is some CO2 produced, which is what we expected from the oxidation of glucose. In addition, a new cofactor makes its appearance coenzyme A, a sulfur-containing small molecule. It also contains pantothenic acid as part of its structure, which is a vitamin. This becomes bound to the acetate in a thioester linkage. A thioester is analogous to an ester, except a sulfhydryl is one of the reactants instead of an alcohol, so a sulfur atom takes the place of an oxygen. A thioester contains a high-energy bond and so there should be a squiggle on it. See Becker, pages 413 to 414 for the exact structure, if you wish. It is acetyl-CoA, the product of this dehydro dehydrogenation of pyruvate, that is the compound that now enters the Krebs cycle proper. Acetyl-CoA condenses with a molecule of oxaloacetate, a four-carbon dicarboxylic acid, to produce citrate, a six-carbon tricarboxylic acid. 
thus the name tricarboxylic acid cycle, or TCA cycle, as a synonym for the Krebs cycle. CoA is split off in the course of this reaction. The high energy bond to CoA is utilized to help drive this otherwise endergonic synthesis of a six carbon molecule. The free CoA is regenerated and so is not consumed. Now we have a new loose end, however, oxaloacetate. We have introduced, borrowed this molecule, much as we borrowed an NAD. So now it's oxaloacetate plus two NADs, no really four NADs and two oxaloacetates per glucose molecule. We must pay back these debts by the end of our path, which remember now is going to be glucose going to CO2. We've labeled the carbons of acetyl-CoA with an asterisk and a dot, so we can follow them as they go through this set of reactions. In the laboratory, it's also possible to use organic molecules labeled in this way by using molecules in which particular carbons or hydrogens have been replaced with their radioactive counterparts or isotopes. For instance, C14 instead of the usual C12 or H3 instead of the usual H1. Radioactivity counters can then be used to track and measure the appearance of the isotopes in various purified intermediate compounds. The citrate formed is then isomerized to isocitrate. Note the movement of the hydroxyl group from the middle to one end. The isocitrate is oxidized once again using NAD and it's simultaneously decarboxylated to produce alpha-ketoglutarate and now our second molecule of CO2. We need to get three from our three-carbon pyruvate molecule, so this is two except the actual carbon is not from our acetyl-CoA, that is, from our pyruvate, but rather from the oxaloacetate that we borrowed. Looks like it may be a bad debt. Here we've borrowed an oxaloacetate, and now we've blown it into CO2. How are we ever going to pay it back? Well, let's go on. Next, we have an oxidative decarboxylation from the five-carbon alpha-ketoglutarate to the four-carbon succinate. This is actually a set of two reactions, as can be seen in the Becker text. Once again, the CO2 comes not from the acetyl-CoA carbons, but from a carbon atom originally in oxaloacetate. But here we have a new and welcome feature, the production of GTP from GDP. The free energy from this oxidation is coupled to the phosphorylation of GDP with inorganic phosphate. GDP is a compound, a nucleotide, related to ADP, the structure being the same except for the substitution of the guanine ring for the adenine ring. The production of GTP is energetically equivalent to producing ATP, since GTP plus ADP can form ATP plus GDP. The delta G naught for that reaction is about zero, so it's about even going either way. So we finally get some ATP here, two moles per mole of glucose, equal to what we netted in glycolysis. The mechanism of this coupling is less obvious than we saw in glycolysis, where the substrates were phosphorylated. Here the inorganic phosphate and GDP are both bound by the enzyme as part of the overall reaction.
the alpha-ketoglutarate plus NAD plus CoA split off the CO2, the NAD becomes NADH2, and you get an intermediate succinyl-CoA. The succinyl-CoA plus inorganic phosphate plus another enzyme can split off the CoA and actually attach the succinyl phosphate to the enzyme. This complex is then resolved into the enzyme plus phos with phosphate attached plus free succinate. And the enzyme plus phosphate can then react with GDP to transfer the phosphate to GDP to form GTP and free enzyme. So quite a complicated reaction. Next, the succinate is dehydrogenated across its central two carbons, producing fumaric acid. This is the reaction we discussed earlier, illustrating enzyme specificity, the succinic dehydrogenase reaction. Here, the oxidizing agent is flavin adenine dinucleotide, FAD, rather than NAD. FAD is a better oxidizing agent, that is, it's more easily reduced than NAD. The delta G naught for this reaction using NAD would be highly unfavorable, whereas with FAD it's much more favorable. About 10 kilocalories per mole difference, actually. So now we have to add two FADH2s to our debt list. Our debt list now includes NADH2, FADH2, and oxaloacetate. Continuing, we add water across the fumarate's C-C double bond to get malate, and then once again dehydrogenate, that is oxidize using NAD to get the four-carbon dicarboxylic ketoacid oxaloacetate. So we can pause here. Our oxaloacetate has been regenerated, and it's ready to take on another acetyl-CoA. We've utilized one pyruvate and have released one, two, three CO2 molecules. We've carried out five oxidations per pyruvate, four with NAD and one with FAD, four oxidations in the cycle proper, and one oxidation getting into the cycle. We produced one ATP equivalent per pyruvate, and we've accumulated four NADH2s and one FADH2 per pyruvate. You should double all these for per-glucose accounting. But we have paid back our oxaloacetate debt, not with the original oxaloacetate molecule, but no one will ever know the difference, except perhaps some nosy biochemist with radioactive isotopes. Our labeling shows that the CO2 molecules produced in this turn of the cycle were not derived from the acetyl-CoA. The acetyl carbons have ended up either on the top or the bottom of the oxaloacetate that was regenerated. We don't know which end because fumarate is a symmetric molecule and the water addition forming malate could have produced a hydroxyl on either the labeled or the unlabeled end. So far we've gotten precious little energy out in the form of ATP and yet we still have the NADH2 and FADH2 to pay back. And oxygen has not been involved yet. The electrons of glucose, entering here as pyruvate, have not been delivered to oxygen, 
but are still on the way station of NADH2 and FADH2. In the next part of the story, NADH2 and FADH2 will pass their electrons on to oxygen, and we will get a lot of ATP from this passage of electrons. This oxidation of NADH2 and FADH2 will return them for further action as NAD and FAD. So let's pass them on to oxygen. NADH2 plus one half of O2 goes to NAD and H2O. The delta G naught of that reaction is minus 53 kilocalories per mole. 53 kilocalories per mole released. Too high, too much energy released. If it were used in one fell swoop of the usual coupled reaction, we'd get only a single ATP's worth, seven kilocalories per mole, from this 53 kilocalories per mole. And we'd release a lot of heat besides. It'd be better if we could break up this 53 kilocalories per mole into smaller bits to use. The scheme for breaking up the free energy change involved in the reduction of oxygen involves passing the electrons from NADH2 and FADH2 not directly to oxygen, but rather through a chain of intermediate transfer steps. This, this chain of steps is called the electron transport chain, sometimes abbreviated ETC. Let's look at view two on the electron transport chain view two three handout or diagram. The electrons from NADH2 are seen to be passed to various electron carriers of the electron transport chain in a precise sequence of transfers. Here, somewhat simplified, see Becker, page 423 to 433, figures 1415 to 1418 for a more complete story. Some of the participants in this chain are proteins called iron sulfur proteins in which iron, as Fe++, ferric, accepts the electrons. This is actually the first acceptor from NADH2. Coenzyme Q, a small molecule, very hydrophobic and lipid-soluble, also called ubiquinone. Cytochromes B, C, and A, really more complicated than this, with cytochromes B, another iron sulfur protein, cytochromes C1, C, A, and A3, the cytochromes having prosthetic groups containing iron, and some of the proteins having copper as a prosthetic group. And finally, on to oxygen, forming water. Follow the electrons in this simplified diagram, that is, the, in view 2-3 handout in which several steps are condensed into one. The electrons from an NADH2 are transferred to coenzyme Q, reducing it to coenzyme QH2. Subsequently, the electrons are passed from coenzyme QH2, or reduced coenzyme Q. That is, coenzyme QH2 gets oxidized by passing the electrons to cytochrome B. The cytochromes contain heme as a prosthetic group in which an iron oxidation reduction occurs. Fe++ ferric plus one electron will give iron 
Fe++ in the ferrous state. So now cytochrome B has the electrons. Cytochrome B gets oxidized by the heme group in cytochrome C. Its iron returns to ferric, Fe plus 3, while cytochrome B's heme group gets reduced from Fe plus 2 to Fe plus, from Fe plus 3 to Fe plus 2. A similar transfer occurs between cytochrome C and A. Finally, cytochrome A passes the electrons to molecular oxygen, which also picks up two protons to go with the two, ele two electrons to form hydrogen atoms, so that the product of this reduction is H2O, which is the final resting place for these travel-weary electrons. View number one on the electron transport chain diagram shows the free energy changes associated with some of these electron transfers. Each transfer is energetically favorable, with some of the changes releasing much more free energy than others. It can be seen here that the 53 kilocalories per mole for the reaction between NADH2 and oxygen has been broken up into smaller packets of free energy changes. The changes marked with an asterisk are those that are capable of generating a molecule of ATP from ADP. We'll get to the mechanism of that generation a little later. You can also see that whereas NADH2 can generate three ATPs, FADH2 can only produce two. View three in the electron transport chain handout shows that these electron transport proteins of the electron transport chain are organized into three groups. These protein complexes are geographically fixed next to each other within a membrane in the cell, as we'll soon see. That is, these are membrane-bound complexes of proteins. Thus, coenzyme Q and the cytochrome C and NAD and FAD are constantly shuttling electrons, picking them up originally from glucose-derived molecules, and then delivering them elsewhere, and then returning to pick up another load. In the end, O2 receives the electrons. All the reduced forms of the oxidative cofactors, NADH2, FADH2, return to the oxidized state, NAD, FAD, having gotten rid of these electrons. And so, we have no NAD or FAD loose end debt any longer. All debts have been paid. The glucose carbon atoms have been converted to CO2. The electrons from glucose have now all been delivered to O2 to form water. So where does the ATP come in after all this bother? If ATP is the energy currency of the cell, show me the money. To understand how ATP is generated in this process of electron transport, we must discuss the special structures in the cell where all this electron transport and ATP generation takes place. The mitochondria. Singular is mitochondrion. Some important features of the mitochondrial structure can be seen in the simple diagram of the mitochondrion handout. So please look at that in the following discussion. There is an outer membrane that's permeable to most small molecules, to molecular weight of about 5,000, 
and which need not concern us much here. There is an inner membrane with Christi, which are extensive invaginations to increase the membrane surface area, and which does provide a barrier to transport. The reactions of the Krebs cycle, as well as the entrance reaction to the cycle, take place on the inside of the mitochondrion, which is called the matrix of the mitochondrion. Glycolysis takes place in the cytoplasm, so the pyruvate produced must get into the mitochondrial matrix. The electron transport chain protein complexes are held within the inner membrane, within these Christi. But where is the energy, the ATP? The answer lies in the chemiosmotic theory first proposed by Peter Mitchell in 1961. The energy released at each of the electron transfers is stored in an electrochemical gradient established across the mitochondrial inner membrane. Concomitant with electron flow, hydrogen ions are being pumped out of the matrix into the intermembrane space. These hydrogen ions are not clearly from NADH2 per se, as hydrogen ions get pumped out even in the later steps in the electron transport chain where no protons are directly involved, just electrons on iron atoms. So this pumping out of hydrogen ions must be coupled to the binding and release of electrons by the proteins involved. You can see one proposed simple mechanism on the uh, on one of the handouts. The immediate effect of this hydrogen ion pumping is a higher concentration of hydrogen ions outside the mitochondria's inner membrane and a lower concentration of hydrogen ions inside the mitochondria. Now we allow the pumped out hydrogen ions to flow back. By mass action the proteins, the protons, will flow from a region of high concentration to a region of lower concentration. A steady state increment between the outside and the inside of the inner membrane is thus maintained, resulting in the matrix inside being about one pH unit higher than the outside, a constant kicking out and flowing back. The hydrogen ions may not get that far, but the outer membrane is no barrier to the hydrogen ions, so how far they get is not an important factor here. The flowback is through lollipop-like structures that populate the inner surface of the inner membrane. Each lollipop is a complex of proteins. The stem is called F0 and forms a channel through the membrane. The sphere is called F1 and contains the ATP synthetase activity. That is, it is in the spheres that the generation of ATP from ADP plus inorganic phosphate takes place. It is the flowback of hydrogen ions through the F0 sphere, through the F1 spheres that generates the phosphorylation of ATP by inorganic phosphate to form ADP. An analogy would be to use one source of energy to pump water up to a high level behind a dam, the pumping of protons tied to the free energy released in the oxidation of the electron transport chain components, 
and then letting the water drive turbines to generate electricity as it falls from the high level behind the dam. This would be the generation of ATP. This is one place where reading of both texts can help in understanding of this very indirect mechanism. Indeed, this theory was doubted for many years after its proposal by Mitchell. It's also known as the Mitchell Hypothesis. Mitchell was known to do experiments in the basement of his mansion in England, just like in the movies. The mechanism of this reaction, the ATP synthetase, has only become clearer in the last few years and is still not completely understood. The F1 spheres are organized like a propeller with three identical blades. The blades can be configured in space to provide a binding site for ATP and inorganic phosphate or for ATP. That should be a binding site for ADP and inorganic phosphate or for ATP. The protons outside the mitochondrial membrane flow back first through the F0 stem channel and then bind to an F1 propeller blade. This binding produces an allosteric change that affects a binding site for ADP and inorganic phosphate that is on the face of one of the protein subunits exposed on the inside of the mitochondrion. This distortion forces the ADP and inorganic phosphate together on one propeller blade, while the ATP that has just been formed on another propeller blade is distorted in the opposite way to release the ATP that's formed. The sequence of these three events is thus one binding of ADP and inorganic phosphate, two, a kind of mechanical pushing of them together, followed by three, a quick release of the ATP formed. The formation of these three conformations is driven by protons binding to specific amino acids on the protein subunits. What's quite amazing is that this successive shifting of conformations is accompanied by movement of the F1 sphere relative to the F0 stem, or base. Thus, as the protons flow back into the mitochondrion, the F1 spheres are spinning like propellers, and thus the propeller analogy. This movement has been seen in elegant experiments in which long fluorescent molecules have been attached to the F1 spheres and then seem to rotate or whip around when a hydrogen ion gradient is applied. Thus we have here perhaps the world's smallest motor. This process of forming ATP by a proton motive force is called oxidative phosphorylation, or oxfos for short. And so there are two methods of producing ATP from glucose metabolism. Oxidative phosphorylation and the regular direct phosphorylation of ADP from phosphorylated intermediates that was seen during glycolysis or in the GTP forming step in the Krebs cycle. This direct phosphorylation is called substrate level phosphorylation to distinguish it from oxfos. Some evidence for the validity of the chemiosmotic theory of oxidative phosphorylation is one. Adding hydrogen ions, adding acid in moderation, back 
to closed vesicles or membrane-bound spheres that have been formed from membranes containing the F1-F0 protein complexes generates ATP from ADP plus inorganic phosphate in the test tube. 2. Isolated electron transport chain complexes 1, 3, or 4 inserted into artificial membranes are able to pump hydrogen ions in the predicted directions when provided with the appropriate substrates, reduced electron carriers like NADH2 or FADH2. 3. Dinitrophenol, a small, partially hydrophobic molecule, can return hydrogen ions to the inside of the mitochondria via a short circuit. It ferries them across the inner membrane. Thus, the hydrogen ions avoid the F0 tunnel. This compound uncouples hydrogen ion transport from ATP generation. So you get electron transport, but no oxfos, since there's no longer a buildup of a proton gradient across the membrane. What about E. coli? They have no mitochondria. In fact, the mitochondrion is about the size of an E. coli cell. Bacteria simply use their own plasma or cell membrane and kick the hydrogen ions out into the medium. Okay, so how much ATP do we get after all this? One ATP per pair of electrons transferred through each of the three enzyme complexes, one, two, and four. The number of protons transferred per pair of electrons is not really known precisely. It's been estimated at 10 to 12. So three to four protons flowing back can produce an ATP. So three ATPs per pair of electron of electrons passing through the full electron transport chain. So three ATPs per one-half oxygen molecule accepting those electrons. Or three ATPs per NADH2 initiating the electron trans transfer at step one. But only two ATPs per FADH2 which skips complex one and delivers electrons to coenzyme Q via complex two, with little free energy released in that first step. Overall, an ATP tally of respiration, as this oxidative metabolism of glucose is called, respiration, is as follows. ATP from substrate level phosphorylation per glucose molecule, glycolysis, minus two that have to be invested, then plus four further down the line for a net of plus two. In the Krebs cycle, two per glucose as GTP. So total substrate level phosphorylations is yielding four ATPs. ATP from oxidative phosphorylation, first per, per glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate where the first oxidation takes place. It's a little easier to calculate that way. One NADH2 from glycolysis, one from entry into the Krebs cycle, and three from the Krebs cycle proper. So five NADH2s produced at three ATPs for each NADH2 gives us 15. 
FADH2, we get 1 from the Krebs cycle at 2 ATPs per FADH2 for a total of 2 ATPs. So total oxidative phosphorylation ATPs per molecule of glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate is 17 per glucose molecule multiplied by 2. So 17 times 2 is 34. Our grand total then is 4 from substrate level phosphorylation, 34 from oxidative phosphorylation for a total of 38 ATPs per glucose. That's for E. coli and other prokaryotes. Now, if we're considering eukaryotic cells, we need to subtract two ATPs from this total. As two ATPs are used to get the electrons from the two cytoplasmic NADH2s from glycolysis in the cytoplasm into the mitochondria, which is by an indirect mechanism. So the net for eukaryotes is only 36. Consider the efficiency, 36 ATPs times 7 kilocalories per mole for ATP hydrolysis, or 252 kilocalories per mole of energy harnessed as ATP. 252 divided by the 686 potentially available from glucose combustion for an efficiency of 37%. Once again, better than most man-made engines, which are in the neighborhood of 25%. And compare 36 ATPs per glucose from this respiration compared to only 2 ATPs per glucose for fermentation. So with or without air, ATP is no problem. We can make it given glucose. But do we live from glucose alone? How about a carbon and energy source other than glucose? How about fat? More specifically, let's consider the glycerol part of the fat molecule. Consider glycerol, CH2OH, CHOH, CH2OH. The first step in the metabolism of glycerol is an investment of 1 ATP to form glycerol-1-phosphate. Then glycerol-1-phosphate reacts with NAD to get oxidized to dihydroxyacetone phosphate plus NADH2. Dihydroxyacetone phosphate looks familiar. Yes, it's in the glycolytic pathway. So from that point, dihydroxyacetone phosphate can continue to be metabolized in glycolysis. Under aerobic conditions, there's no problem. The NADH2 is produced, will get reoxidized in the electron transport chain. How about under anaerobic conditions? Consider E. coli trying to grow in glycerol minimal medium with, with glycerol as the sole organic compound instead of our usual glucose under anaerobic conditions. We used two NADs to get down to pyruvate starting from glycerol. One, to make dihydroxyacetone phosphate by oxidizing glycerol-1-phosphate, which we just mentioned. 
and one at the usual place in glycolysis at the oxidation of glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate. But we get back only one in going to lactate from pyruvate. If we try to run the lactate fermentation using glycerol as our only carbon and energy source, we will grind to a halt as all of our NAD ends up as NADH2. You'll reach a state where all the NAD is in the form of NADH2, and there's no pyruvate left, just dihydroxyacetone phosphate waiting for an NAD that is not there. So although E. coli will grow just fine on glycerol in the presence of air, it will not, in fact, grow on glycerol in the absence of air, anaerobically. So these loose endettes are real. What about the fatty acids from fats? What about using proteins as carbon and energy sources, or polysaccharides? Most of these can be used. They get hydrolyzed down to small molecules, and the small molecules get transformed in a short series of reactions to the same intermediates we've met in glycolysis and the Krebs cycle. Thus, these two energy-yielding pathways are the common endpoints for most catabolism, or breakdown of molecules for energy. Similarly, the biosynthetic pathways to the monomers, anabolism, start with the glycolytic and Krebs cycle intermediates, which get transformed in a series of small steps to all the amino acids, the fatty acids, and the sugars necessary to build the cell. Almost all of these pathways are known, and they can be summarized on a metabolic map. It's not necessary to read such maps in detail to get the idea that there are a complex series of pathways that boil down to a manageable number that can be put on one large sheet of paper, with glycolysis and Krebs cycle at its center. Rather than continue to reveal the beauty of these pathways, we'll return to our story of building E. coli. We've seen in the last few lectures the function of proteins as enzymes. Now we must consider the biosynthesis of proteins, how the amino acids are put together in this, in this all-important primary structure. But to understand protein synthesis, we first have to understand the nature of nucleic acids. So our next chapter will then be a consideration of the structure and function of DNA.